0: Welcome back tonight. We're so thankful that you're here. We will continue our study of Bible evangelism, and tonight we'll sort of focus on a little bit different uh, uh, standpoint of it. But as we do that tonight, all of us are probably familiar with the fact that a long, long time ago, God made a promise to Abraham. I want us to go back, though, if you have your Bible, you may want to follow along with us in the Bible, but I want us to go back and want us to think about some things tonight because it's going to be important to us as it relates to our evangelism efforts when we think about what is said here. As we begin tonight, turn to the book of Genesis chapter 22, and we'll look at verses 15 through 18. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. This is again the promise, or at least one of the statements of the promise that God makes to Abraham. He said, "...the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven," And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Let's stop right there. This is happening just after Abraham had taken his son Isaac, and uh, had uh, attempted to offer him as God had commanded. Of course, God stayed his hand and would not allow him to take his life. We know from the New Testament that Abraham said that he believed that God, even if he had taken his life that God would have raised him from the dead. But he said, he's, he's telling Abraham this, after you've done this and did not withhold your son, your only son, he said, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your off, uh, <coughs> you get the word out, offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so we have that, we understand, we know, most of us who are here, we've studied through that enough to understand that the offspring that he's talking about there is not just Isaac, but the offspring who would come later, the offspring, Jesus Christ. And, and we could turn to the New Testament tonight and deal with that in great detail, but that's not the emphasis that we're, that we're making the emphasis that we're making has to do with the offspring prior to the coming of Christ. You know, you had to get from point A to point B, and there were a lot of people in between. And he says all of those people in between, they would be as the, uh, as the stars and as the sand. Of course, we know them as the Israelites. And if we were to carry it farther into the New Testament, we understand that the descendants of Abraham uh, are are not those who are born physically as a Jew today, but those who are Christians. Uh, And so we can include them as the stars of the heaven and the seashore as well. But prior to the time of Christ, getting from point A, the promise to Abraham, to point B, the time of Christ, We still had that mighty nation that would rise up from them. In the book of Acts chapter 7 at verse number 17, still talking about this same thing and same people, the Bible says, but as the time of the promise drew near, again, the promise is the same one that we just read back in the book of Genesis chapter 22, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now we remember the story, uh, the plagues and all of those things uh, that God used in order to get Pharaoh to release uh, the children of Israel. We even remember the story of how they got there. We have uh, uh, Joseph's brother selling him as a slave, and he makes his way down into Egypt because these traders carried him down there. And he ended up serving in the, in the household of Pi, uh, uh, Potiphar and then, uh, uh, of course, being put in jail and eventually rising to second in command in Egypt. We all we remember all of those kinds of things. But as the time that they spent there, a little over 400 years, as that time went on, you know, the, the nation multiplied, the people multiplied. It doesn't take long to get a house full, does it? You know, we we sort of kid about uh, last year. We went up to Atwood, and 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 we were laughing about uh, uh, all of our family was there. Daniel and I spoke both on that same day. And and when we first moved there back in 1990, there were four of us. Well, Daniel has doubled that almost in his own family, and so you know it doesn't take long to get a house full. I remember back number of years ago was back in the 90s when my grandfather died, and. And not long before he died, uh, they had a, I think it was their 60th wedding anniversary, and had all of the family there together. And and I remember my cousin asking uh, my grandparents, you know, when when y'all got married back in the 1930s, uh, could you have imagined how many offspring, how many people there would be? And so when we we think about it, it doesn't take long. But they multiplied. And uh, some estimates are when they came out of Egyptian bondage, There were as many as two to three million of them. And so that just basically confirms what God said. But as the time of the promise drew near, they were in Egypt and they they were multiplying. Again, staying in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 13 at verse 17, the Bible says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. Again, that's just confirming what a little bit of what we've already stated tonight. But by the powerful hand of God, he brought them out. Now, why that is going to be important, uh, we'll see in just a moment. But we're simply tracing these things through, through the Scripture. Let's go back now to the book of Deuteronomy, switch back to the Old Testament. And this is after God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. We take them to Mount Horeb, or uh, the Mount... Uh, Uh, as sometimes it's called Mount Sinai. In the Bible there, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, this is after they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The the, the restatement of the law that he is going to make is found uh, beginning just a couple of verses after our reading here. But I want you to pay close attention to what is said here. It's of all of these people, this multitude of people, that had grown to be a multitude while in Egyptian captivity, that the Bible says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, that's the important part for our study tonight. The Lord made a covenant with them in Horeb. Now, who did he make the covenant with that is at Horeb or Sinai? Who did he make that covenant with? Verse 3, not with our fathers did the Lord make make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The children of Israel is who Moses is talking to, and, and, and he said it's to you, to this great nation, that he made this covenant. Now, what covenant was it? Well, again, I stated just a moment ago that uh, a couple of verses down, Moses starts reciting what we know as the Ten Commandments. And so that is the covenant that God made with Israel in the Old Testament. He didn't make it with the Gentiles. He didn't make it with those who were of the offspring of of Abraham through Ishmael. He made it with the offspring of Isaac. And uh, we know them as the Israelites Uh, We read about them in the New Testament. We call them simply the Jews in the New Testament. And so that is who He made the covenant with. But now, let's go a step farther again, and let's look in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, and let's first look at verses 31 and 32. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. There Jeremiah writes and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, what was that old covenant? The old covenant was the one that was made back at Horeb that we just uh, spent several minutes talking about, you know, setting up for that. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, There's something special about that covenant. It is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Under the Old Testament, you know well, and it hasn't been that long since we studied through the book of Judges. And time and time and time again, the children of Israel would stray away from God, and God would bring punishment upon them, and then God would send a deliverer to them. And they kept on and on and on and on and on. They pretty much kicked God out, if you will, uh, of their way of thinking and their life. And so God says, I've had enough, and that was within His plan uh, from, the, from the very beginning. But He said, I'm going to make another, another covenant, because these people, they will not, do not, they, they don't keep that covenant. Now, if you were here with us this morning, we read from the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 4. And and, and it's pretty strong language that God uses in relation to these people uh, about how that they they basically were stupid children, and they had gone astray. And and so he's still talking about that. Look at verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What are you talking about? What is it that you have in mind? God, when is this covenant going to be brought about? Well, this is not on the screen, but if you'll turn to the book of Hebrews in your copy of God's Word, chapter number 8. We'll begin reading in verse number 6. And I want you to to follow along in your Bible there, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6, and we'll go down through verse number 12. The Bible says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old starts out, uh, as we're looking at here in in Jeremiah 31, but he begins to quote from the book of Jeremiah. And, And he goes on, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, I want you to pay close attention to verse number 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. You see, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes it pretty clear that the covenant, the new covenant, is established in Christ, and it's not just in chapter 8. He spends uh, several chapters there dealing with uh, uh, the sacrifice and the covenant that God would make with His people, and that is us, and that's during the Christian age of time, the time in which we're living. We're living under the New Testament law, or should we say we're living under the new covenant that He made. But again, let me call your attention back. I was sort of letting it uh, circulate in your mind. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, what is our topic on Sunday nights? We've been talking about evangelism. What is that? Isn't that telling others about Christ? Somebody said, Preacher, what you're preaching about doesn't make any difference now because the Lord said we're not going to be teaching anybody. We don't have to teach anybody. Well, we need to understand something, don't we? Is the Bible contradictory? Does not the New Testament teach us that we are to be teachers? Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. The section of Matthew that we know is the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded them, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is it? Are we to teach or are we not to teach? Or what about in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse number 2? And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men... Who will be able to teach others also? Are we to teach or are we not to teach? You know, under the new covenant, which is it? Lord, I'm confused. What, what, what do you mean by this confusing phrase? Let's see if we can understand it. How did one get under the covenant, the first covenant, the old covenant? How did one get under that covenant? Well, we've already explained that. We didn't say it in just that way, but the way one became a part of that covenant was to be born into the family of Abraham through Isaac. We stated that a while ago. They became a person who was under the Old Testament covenant by physical birth, right? That's the only way they could be. But just because one was born into the family of Abraham does not mean that they automatically knew God, did it? Just like a child today is born and we teach them all kinds of things, those people had to be taught who they were and how they were to act. They had to be taught that they were of the covenant, God's covenant people under the Old Testament. You need to come to know the Lord as the one who is the administrator of the covenant in the Old Testament. And so they would be taught who they were and and how they needed to act. Unfortunately for for many of them, they forgot both. They forgot who they were, that they were God's people, and they went after idols, and they wanted to be like the people around them and have a king and all of those kinds of things. And, And, of course, we've already talked tonight about them going astray. But now under the New Covenant... How is it that we get under that new covenant? Well, it's still by birth, isn't it? We're born into the family of God, not with a physical birth. Just because your, your parents were Christians doesn't mean that you're automatically a Christian. Now, in our nation, if your parents are, or at least one of them is an American, you have American citizenship. But it's not that way under god's new testament covenant is it have you ever known families who have a mother and a daddy who were were just the finest people the most upstanding faithful christians that you could imagine and yet they had some of the well let's use jeremiah's language back in jeremiah chapter four they had stupid children have you ever known that i'm not trying to be crude or ugly but it's because of the actions, okay? And so when we're looking under the New Testaments, one has to, one has to be born into the family of God, has to be uh, uh, baptism, of course, is what we're talking about here, uh, to be born. Uh, that's what uh, Jesus told Nicodemus back in the book of John, chapter number 3. But that physical birth is not it, but one is born into the under the New Covenant, by choice. By choice. Now, why would one, anyone choose to be born into God's family? Why would, they, why would they ever choose to do that? Number one, they've already been taught. They've already come to know God. And so, once one enters the family of God under the new covenant, it's not necessary to teach that person to know the Lord. Did you notice when I was reading a while ago what I emphasized? You are to teach them, or they would not be taught, know the Lord. Because we already know Him. We've already been taught who He is, and what it's all about. We've been taught about how that we are to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we made that confession before we ever got into the kingdom. The great confession. Do You remember when a lot of times someone has come forward to be baptized and and we have them stand up and, and someone will ask them the greatest question that they're ever asked, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And I've never heard anyone yet tell me, when I ask that question, no. Everybody says yes. Everybody knows, as it were, the Lord. They are taught what to do in order to get into that family. And so once they're in that family, there's no reason to teach them know the Lord, because they already know. But His words, His his teachings, the things that He says, He says they're written on their heart. When we obey the gospel, where does that come from? In the book of Romans, you believe from the heart that form of doctrine that you've been taught. For one to be a Christian, there has to be a heart transplant or heart change, I guess is a way, better way of saying it. We've already come to know the Lord. Now, obviously, when we turn to the book of Matthew, the second part of uh, what we read there in Matthew chapter 28 is that uh, they become disciples, they know the Lord, and then we continue to learn all of the things that God wants us to know. Okay, But as we look at it, as we see it, the covenant, one became uh, under the covenant in the Old Testament by physical birth under the New Testament, It's by the choice of birth, by choosing to be baptized. And thus we know the Lord. Now, that brings us to the topic of our discussion again tonight, practical knowledge for Bible evangelism. Those outside Christ must come to know Him. No doubt about it. They must come to know Him. And those inside Christ, Christians, should already know Him, as, we under, as we've just been endeavoring to talk about, and know Him well enough to be able to tell others about Him, about the hope that lies in them, that's given to them through the new covenant. Now, have you ever heard anybody use that excuse? I just don't know enough to teach others. Anybody ever heard that excuse? Just don't know enough... To teach others. Hopefully, there's no one here tonight in this audience who is using that excuse for not evangelizing. But if you are, I want you to know tonight you're in the right place. And if you will continue to study with us throughout this uh, uh, this year, from from tonight onward, we're going to begin filling our minds with that knowledge. And so, if you if you've had that on your mind, that, well, I just don't know enough. If you'll keep listening by the end of this year, you'll know enough in order to teach someone what to do to be under the new covenant, under Christ. Now, even if you've never used that excuse, you're still in the right place. For from tonight forward, we're going to enhance our Bible knowledge, our practical Bible knowledge and advance it as we study together. And so we're, we're in the right place. But I want us to understand tonight, Christianity is a religion of instruction. Someone has said, where there's no solid biblical instruction, the Christian system can neither commence nor continue. That's, that is a true statement. In the book of Romans chapter 10... Verses 14 through 17. Listen to the words of Paul. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? That's a valid question, isn't it? How could anyone call on the name of the Lord to be saved if they haven't believed in Him? How then shall they call on Him in whom uh, they have not believed? A- and how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? That is an equally valid question, isn't it? I could never believe in something that I don't know about, right? How can they believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Christianity is a religion of instruction. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights over the past few weeks, we've been studying from Acts chapter number 2. And just this past week, we looked at again what is said in verse 37. Now when they heard this... They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What what did they hear? We're coming back to that in just a moment. But they had to hear in order to believe. And in order to believe, uh, uh, a part of that was becoming obedient as well. You know, it's sad today that the average person in the pew... That's not everyone, Uh, certainly not everyone here I understand that. We have some diligent Bible students here. But the average Joe out there in the pew, the average person out there in the pew is no longer a good Bible student. They're no longer a good student of the Bible. They listen to what the preacher says, what the Bible class teachers say. And a lot of times that's the only instruction they get. Christianity is a religion of instruction. If I want God's Word to be in my heart, how am I going to get it there? God's not going to take my head off, the top of my head off, and pour it down in there. He gave me a book. A book of instructions that I can put into my heart. Thy Word have I hid in my heart, David would say, that I might not... Sin against thee. Christianity is a religion of instruction. Now let me give you three things about the New Testament tonight. The New Testament was given to do at least these three things. Number one, to produce faith in Christ. That's the reason the New Testament was given to us. To produce faith in Christ. Look at John chapter 21 at verse number 25. John 21 verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a whole lot more while he was on earth than what we have recorded for us. Now, the obvious thing is we have enough recorded to know enough about it and to know what we need to know. But John said, you know, if we wrote every detail down, man, that library would be so big that you'd have to use the whole world in order to to stock all the books. So why did John write the parts that he wrote? Why did he record the deeds and the actions of Christ that he did? Well, that's one chapter earlier. That's in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. Now, that's sort of the theme that He picked back up with in John chapter 21. But if we jump back to John chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Why did John write? Why did the rest of the New Testament writers write? So that we can believe and that we can, through our faith in Christ, have that hope of eternal life. We can believe in Him and be saved is another way of putting it. The New Testament was given to produce faith in Christ. Number two, the New Testament was also given to convict the sinner of sin. To convict the sinner of sin. Now again, I mentioned a moment ago Acts chapter 2, but I couldn't, as I was studying for this lesson, I couldn't think of a, a better illustration than what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. Some of you have been in our Bible class on Wednesday nights, some of you are teaching, some of you haven't been here. But in the book of Acts chapter number 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter and the other apostles began to preach by the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit giving them the words that they were to say, they basically, as we noted in our study, broke it down into about two or three things. Number one, you killed him. Number two, Christ raised him. Now let's look at John, uh, rather Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 very quickly tonight. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's basically at the beginning of the sermon. Peter lays it out. And then he lays down the proof, the evidence, of what they had done and the things about Jesus that they needed to know. But it was God's plan for all of this to take place. And you killed him. And God raised him. Now, how does he end his sermon? Look at verse 36. Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Folks, if if Peter is not driving home the fact that these people were sinners and having slain the Lord... I don't know what else to make of his sermon. And and frankly, these people, they understood the point that Peter and the other apostles were making when they said, you killed him and God raised him and God showed that he had favor, God has has, uh, exalted him to that lofty position. They understood because in verse 37, again as we mentioned just a moment ago, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they were convicted of the sin. And and tonight, and again we noted this in our Wednesday night studies, until we come face to face with the fact that you and I are sinners, we don't have a need for a Savior, do we? If I'm not lost, I don't need a Savior. I'm in good shape. But I am lost. And I have to come face to face with my sin. And that's why the New Testament was given to us, to convict the sinner of sin. It is so unfortunate today that so many religious bodies in our world have decided not to confront the sinner with sin but rather to soothe the conscience of the sinner by being so accepting of the sin that there is no need for any change whatsoever in the life of any person. The folks who do that have missed the point of the New Testament. It's to produce faith in Christ, but... What good is our faith in Christ if we don't know why we believe in Him? To convict the sinner of sin. But number three, the New Testament was written to convey God's terms of pardon. To convey God's terms of pardon. How how do I do something about what I've done as a sinner? Now notice in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Some significant things. Although he was a son, talking about Jesus himself, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, just think about that statement for a moment. Did Jesus have to go through all that he did while he was here on this earth? No, he didn't have to. Had he gotten tired of doing it and decided that you and I are not necessary, uh, not, we're not worth it, at any time, he could have ascended right back into heaven. As he told Pilate, he could call down more than 12 legions of angels at that point, and there would be nothing they could do. but He learned obedience. Even Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. Being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to who? According to that passage, all who obey Him. Salvation. Obedience. He became... The source of salvation, depending upon which translation you're reading from, the author of salvation to those who obey Him. To obey Christ is to access salvation. To obey Christ is to follow His terms of pardon in order to have that salvation. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, another passage that every one of us should be able to quote. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone's going to get there. Why? Do they not, do they not believe in him? Well, yeah, they called him Lord. Lord, Lord. but they didn't obey Him. You see, they didn't follow the terms that God set out under the new covenant in order to be saved. And then look at Romans chapter 1 at verse number 5. While you're turning there in your Bible, the book of Romans sometimes is a misused book. There are a number of times when faith is dealt with in the book of Romans. The faith of Abraham is discussed in the book of Romans. And a lot of people have stopped short of the full teaching of the book of Romans and concluded that the only thing necessary for anyone to follow God's terms of pardon is simply to believe in God. Just to have that faith somewhere in our heart, somewhere in our mind, that that uh, acknowledgement, if you will, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, let me just say tonight, you can't go to heaven without believing that. John, Jesus would uh, speak of that, and John would record it. But you've got to have that faith. But now that you've got over to Romans chapter 1 at verse number 5, look at what Paul writes. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about... Watch this. The obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. If that is not underlined in your Bible, now would be a good time to fix it. In the very first chapter of the book of Romans, anything that he is discussing in regard to faith has to be thought about in that light. Through the obedience of faith. Now turn to Romans chapter 16. And look at verse number 26. In Romans chapter 16 at verse 26, But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of Of faith. If that phrase is not underlined in your Bible, now would be a good time to fix that. The obedience of faith. Now, wait a minute. In the very first chapter, when he begins talking about faith, what kind of faith is Paul writing about? Obedient faith. When he closes the, cha- the book in Romans chapter number 16, he reiterates what kind of faith it was that he has been discussing in all of those 16 chapters. Obedient faith. James would simply say it this way, faith without works is dead. Those who hold on to the book of Romans and and fail somehow to comprehend what is said in Romans chapter 1 at verse 5 and Romans chapter 16 at verse 26, would rather throw the book of James away. Because James is quite clear in how he puts it. You see, the New Testament was given to convey God's terms of pardon. And when we look at the New Testament, when we study in the New Testament, we understand what God expects of us. You know, to faithfully relay this message, we've got to have a practical knowledge of God's Word. A working practical knowledge. We, we need to know what it says. And be able to tell folks what the book says. And a lot of times when we, we began to talk to folks about the Gospel, about salvation, about Christ... We approach it with the wrong tools, the wrong attitude. We've already talked about it. We're not in it to win an argument. What are we to do in winning people to Christ? Show them God's terms of pardon, show them the Christ. Produce the faith that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. Let them know, understand, I need what Christ offers because I'm guilty. And then lay out God's terms. But again, that requires a practical knowledge of the Word of God. You know what? As we think about that tonight, Larry, I'm not clicking. You'll get me to the next one. We can have gain a knowledge of God's Word. I just can't remember things like I used to. We can gain a knowledge of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this statement, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they should be filled. Hunger, thirst. When you're hungry, what do you want? Something to eat. You want some bread. You want something to eat. Meat. Jesus would say in John chapter 6 at verse 35, I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the book of John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, He said to her, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Where do I get the bread, the bread and the water for Jesus? Where do I find out about Jesus, who is the bread and the water, in the book, in the Bible? Did God give us food that we can't eat and water that we can't drink? See, it's as simple as that. The answer to that is no. In Psalm 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Did God give us a flashlight that won't come on? Now, what is, the, what is the light, the lamp, the Word? God didn't give us a light that wouldn't come on, that we couldn't use, that we can't shine in order to know our way. Did He? Both of those point to the fact that we can gain a knowledge Of God's Word. But then you come to the book of John, chapter 8, verse 32. Very first Bible verse that I learned when I was three years old. And I've told you that story before. Two years old, I guess. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you three. So I was two. Didn't quite get it right. Let me correct that tonight. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth. Sanctify them in thy truth. Your word is truth. John chapter 17, verse 17. To know the truth is to know the word. And Jesus makes it clear that we can know. That we can be made free. In the book of Second Timothy, chapter number 2, verse number 15, Paul writes and says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We've got to use the word right. We've got to rightly divide it, as the old King James says. From this point forward, in our studies on Sunday night, we're going to be looking at these practical truths that everyone needs to know and be able to teach those who would be saved. And and not only that, as we do that, it will be a detailed and systematic study. I've already mentioned earlier, as we began the year, what we're going to be doing. And this will actually begin the first week of March, because next Sunday night will be our singing night. We're going to be going through the book, the little booklets, back to the Bible. We're not going to open them up and and just fill in the blanks. We're going to take it section by section because they're divided in sections. And, And there's things that all of us need to know, and especially those who are being taught God's plan of salvation, that they need to know. We're going to delve into it, and we're going to expand our Bible knowledge, and we'll... Understand more about God's Word ourselves, so that we can help other folks. We can have that practical Bible knowledge because the New Testament Christianity is a religion of instruction. It may be tonight that you know what you need to do in order to become a Christian and you would like to be baptized for the remission of your sins. We're here for you. We'd love to assist you with that. It may be tonight that there is something amiss in your life that you need to make right. We're here for you for that. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you that your sins might be forgiven. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation,